Well, good morning. So we're almost done. One more uh, piece of Amos this morning. For some of you, uh, you're disappointed. Uh, you've liked Amos. For the rest of us, we're glad we're at the end. Somebody told me that uh, Amos has been like going to the dentist. Um, you know, you need to do it. It's a good thing to do, but it's not always a whole lot of fun. Um, and, and there's some truth to that. Amos has really been challenging. Personally, it's been really convicting and challenging to me on the one hand. On the other hand, it, it also has been, and I think Larry would say this too, really fun to preach because it's not stuff we typically get to go after or wrestle with and figuring out uh, what do you do. You know, Amos is the kind of book where you read, read it and you go, I have no clue what he's even talking about. And then you begin to explore it and read about it and you go, gosh, this, this is brilliant stuff. He, he just is an amazing, amazing author and there, there's great stuff here. And it, it's transformative because it, it, it messes with how you see God and the Christian life. And hopefully you felt some of that as we've gone through the book of, the book of Amos. Anyway, this morning, I want to begin with uh, two questions. The first question this, is this, what is your ultimate destiny? Now, in one sense, everybody in here is going to die. The statistics are, are pretty accurate on that. Everybody does. But I'm not talking about death as your destiny. I want to know what happens to you after death. You know, what is ultimate reality really like? Do, do we die and go sit on clouds and have little hearts and sing songs for the rest of eternity? Is that ultimate destiny or, or is it something different? What happens to us? And the second question is, what difference does that make now? Because I really believe that we are hope-shaped creatures. What I mean by that is simply this, that what we believe will happen to us ultimately impacts us on a daily basis in terms of how we live. What's the impact of what we believe and how we live? Now, Amos, in this last passage, gives us a, a, a bit of hope. He hasn't done that through the rest of the book. And I think the reason he does is that this is a passage that is written for the remnant. Uh, he's hinted at this remnant as you've worked your way through the book, just a couple places in chapter 5, a little bit in chapter 9. The remnant is those people who live in Israel who still want to follow Yahweh, follow God truly. And the question they got, they've been listening to Amos, and, and they're asking themselves, man, how do I live in light of this impending judgment? They know that this judgment is coming on their people, on their nation. What do they do? Do they just, do they just despair? How do they go on living knowing, knowing how displeased God is, God is and how he, he's going to react? What do they do? It's written for them, but I think it's incredibly applicable to us. Because I think if we understand ultimate destiny, it will shape our lives as well. So what I want to do this morning is, first of all, I want to talk about two theological concepts that I think we need to understand before we go to Amos chapter 9 and wrestle with the text. So I want to talk about these two theological concepts, go to the, the text and wrestle with it a little bit, and then draw out two, uh, two implications, applications that I think make a difference for us on a daily basis. So that's where we're going. Let, let's, two theological um, concepts. The first has to do with the comprehensive nature 
of the gospel. I've been a, a Christian now just a little over 40 years. And one of the things I have begun to realize is that the gospel that was shared to me with me uh, when I first became a believer, although though true and life-changing, was also pretty incomplete. And I'm going to call it the gospel of personal benefit. Okay? The gospel of GPP, the gospel of personal benefit. And as I've wrestled with the New Testament and read more of it, I began to discover that this gospel of personal benefit really focused in on 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where we're told that Jesus died for our sins according to the scripture and was resurrected. And that's what I was told as a young believer, but they never read the rest of the chapter, never explained the rest of the chapter for me. So I, I really thought, man, I get to know Jesus, I get eternal life, I get to go to, uh, to heaven, and my goal in life now is just to tell other people the same thing. And uh, that's great, that's all true, but it's also incomplete. And as I read the New Testament, I became uh, interested in the fact that Jesus, in his ministry, talked about the gospel as well and referred to it as the gospel of the kingdom. And I began to wonder, is there, is there really two gospels in the New Testament? Is there this gospel that Jesus is talking about? Because when Jesus is preaching, he hasn't died and gone to the cross and hasn't been resurrected. So how could he be talking about this gospel uh, of death and resurrection if he hasn't done that yet? And then 1 Corinthians 15, I thought, how do you put these two things together or are they different? And I began to realize that they do go together. That one is just a a big picture view and the other is just a a small picture view. But what I also discovered is is that all there's there's great truth here. There's also some lies. And I want to compare both the gospel of personal benefit with the gospel of the kingdom for a moment and then talk about how it relates to Amos. So I put together a little chart that talks about the two. The gospel of personal benefit primarily sees Jesus as your personal savior and friend, all right? Where uh, the gospel of the kingdom has a much bigger view of Jesus. They see Jesus as a cosmic savior and a king. It's interesting, we, we shrink Jesus down sometimes. In the New Testament, Jesus is called savior 16 times. He is called Lord, which is a Greek equivalent to king, 420 times. And when he's talked about being Savior, it's not usually as a personal Savior, but as a cosmic Savior. Now, don't mishear me. I believe that Jesus is your personal Savior, that you have this intimate, personal relationship with him, and it starts there. So I'm not throwing that out. I just think it fits within the larger picture of the kingdom. So don't mishear me. That, that's key. That's where it starts. But I think it also starts with the understanding that he's not just my friend. He's not just my buddy. He's the king. He's the Lord of the universe, and he's doing something, and I am becoming part of something big. I'm not making Jesus part of my story. I'm becoming a part of his story, and that's foundational, and it's very different between the two gospels. So Jesus, personal savior, versus Jesus as cosmic savior and king. In the gospel of personal benefit, the, the focus is usually on the individual. It's all about Jesus and me. And it's, it's almost as if I can have this private relationship with Jesus. Where in the gospel of the kingdom, 
the focus is on the world. It, it's ultimately Jesus and the nations. And the notion is you can have a personal relationship with Jesus. You can have an intimate relationship with Jesus. But you can't have a private relationship with Jesus. When you become part of his story, you come, become part of this community. And this community is on mission to reach the world, specifically the nations. All the tribes, languages, people, groups around the world. You get this picture in Revelation of at the end of time, all the nations, tribes, language groups, worshiping God. And that's the mission that we're on. So it's not about us. It's about His agenda in the world. In the Gospel of Personal Benefit, the cross is all about the forgiveness of sin. In, in the Gospel of the Kingdom, we get forgiveness of sins, but understand why. It's because on the cross, Jesus is doing more than just forgiving our sins. He is defeating all evil and all sin and conquering death. And it's because he defeats evil, sin, and death that we get forgiveness. So forgiveness is there, but so much so more. Um, the goal, and I think this is one of the lies that begins to creep in, uh, the goal in the gospel of personal benefit is to escape this world and get to heaven. And that's, when I was shared, when somebody shared the gospel with me, they said, you know, if you believe in Jesus, you get eternal life, you get to go to heaven. And I didn't know what heaven was, but I thought it just means I get to go someplace else when I die. Well, in the gospel of the kingdom, the goal is the restoration of all creation. And heaven isn't something you escape to. But in Revelation chapter 21, heaven actually comes down to earth. And this earth and heaven are merged, and we'll talk about that. So a fundamentally different goal. And that results in a very different way of engaging with the world. So under the gospel of personal benefit, engagement with the world is seen as an entanglement and distraction. We're only supposed to be about saving souls, right, and getting them a ticket to heaven so they can escape this earth, which is going to be destroyed with us. And, and that's the objective. So you don't get involved in, in, in helping the poor or, or sex trafficking or, or working for justice because those are entanglements. You, it's like lifeboat Christianity. You're on a lifeboat and people are drowning. You just got to get them in the boat so you can escape. I actually had a college professor tell me, you know, you don't polish the brass on a sinking ship. He's saying, you don't get involved in your community. You don't get involved in the world. You protect yourself from it. Because literally, the world's going to hell. We just need to let it go there. So we need to escape. In the gospel of the kingdom, though, engagement with the world is part of our calling of restoration. We are signposts of the kingdom. We're to be about advancing the kingdom and building the kingdom and bringing about the renewal that God is going to bring about ultimately in the end. But we get to play a part of that now. So rather than detaching from the culture, isolating and separating, we engage and try to influence. In the gospel of personal benefit, the world is destroyed. At the end, it's just burned up. There's a new heavens and a new world, but there's no continuity between this world and the world to come. That's a huge distinction. And again, I think that's one of the lies. In the gospel of the kingdom, the world is renewed, and there's a continuity and discontinuity. In other words, the images in the New Testament where you see the world destroyed, they're not images of destruction. They're in images of, of the judgment of, uh, of fire and, and refinement. It's like impure metal being put into the furnace so all the impurities are burned out. And what's destroyed is sin, not the world itself. So there's a continuity between this world and the world to come. 
Now, if there's no continuity, if that world, this world is just destroyed and there's a whole new world, then everything I do in this life is pretty much meaningless unless it's connected to the spiritual side of life. So what happens when we think that way, we create the sacred and the secular, right? And we tell people, if you really want to live a life of significance, if you really want to make a difference, then you've got to become a missionary or you've got to become a pastor and you've just got to share the gospel all the time because that's the only thing that's going to make it across. That's the only thing that counts because the world's destroyed. But if you see the world differently, if you say, no, the world isn't totally destroyed, there's some continuity, it's, the best image is the resurrection of Jesus. When Jesus is resurrected, you looked at him, you still recognize him. He was still Jesus. But he was different. It's like he was in a new dimension. He could walk through walls. He could appear and disappear. Yet he could still eat a fish and you could still touch him. And, and in the scripture, Jesus is called the first fruits. What he means is the first fruits, it's the first of the harvest. We too will be resurrected. But he's also talked about the first fruits in terms of creation, that the whole creation will be resurrected. It's not destroyed. It becomes something new. But it still has things that go back to this environment, this world. Now, that makes all the difference in the world because it means what I do in this world can have eternal significance, not just because it's spiritual, but because I do it as unto the Lord to worship Him. So I can be a lawyer, and the way I lawyer can be done in such a way with integrity and honesty as I'm pursuing justice in such a way that it becomes worship, and that goes into the new heavens and the new world. I can be a construction worker, but I can do it as unto the Lord, so my construction becomes this act of worship, and it is refined and made new and goes into the new creation. And when I understand there's this continuity, then everything in my life can take on kingdom significance to live a really godly life. I don't have to become a pastor. I don't have to become a missionary. I just have to do what God has called me to do in the place he's called me to do it as unto him as an act of worship with integrity. So all vocations become meaningful as long as they can be done unto him. In the gospel of personal benefit, the primary task is evangelism. And sometimes people don't even get there. They think the primary task is just personal growth. But if they get past that, then they say, okay, well, we're just supposed to share the gospel. Now, the, sharing the gospel is incredibly important. Don't mishear me. But I think under the gospel of the kingdom, it happens under the rubric of Jesus as king. The reason we do the Great Commission is because all authority has been given to Jesus. In other words, because he's been declared king. Because he's king and he's my king, I want him to become other people's king. So it becomes the motivation for me to share the reality of who Jesus is. And that's not the only thing I do. Because God is about bringing his kingdom it's partially here, we'll be fully here. He's about bringing it into our world and we get to be signposts and, and, and people who advance it. So there's lots of, of, of agenda things for us to do in line with God's will. The up there coming down here is what we talk about. So, okay, Nick, that's great. What's that have to do with Amos? Everything. Because you see, Amos, the background for Amos is he's really not talking about the gospel of personal benefit. You go through Amos, he's not talking about individual sins. He's not talking about personal morality per se. He's got a very big picture understanding what God's doing. Most of Amos is directed towards the corporate community and, and their sins as a corporate community, their nationalism, their tribalism, the fact that they're enslaving people, the fact that they think they're better nations than others, the fact 
you know, it, it's this corporate community. And much of it has to do with structural evil. In other words, he, he, God is angry at their economic system because they have this merchant class is accumulating more and more wealth and oppressing the poor. And there's a, a gap between the rich and the poor. And God says, I'm not happy with that. In fact, God had structured things in the, the year of Sabbath where loans were forgiven, the year of Jubilee, that would keep that from happening. They're ignoring that and they're oppressing people. The theme in Amos is all about justice and righteousness. And justice is looking out for the rights of other people. So when they don't get their rights, you do something to make sure they do get their their rights. And righteousness is talking about the social fabric in their community that has broken down. So, So Amos is all about working for the common good. And Amos is all over the notion of civil religion. In other words, the Israelites had taken their religion and kind of tweaked it in such a way that it would justify the way they were living and and allow them to be comfortable and not challenge them. Remember in the book, they're they're involved in idolatry, but it's an idolatry of where they have shifted God into what they wanted him to be. In fact, they're worshiping two calves as idols, golden calves. And that's the core of their religion. I went back to Exodus chapter 32 where you're first introduced to the two calves. The, the people of Israel are wandering through the desert. Moses goes up on the mountain to get to the Ten Commandments. And while he's up there, the people fall into idolatry. And Aaron, his brother, molds these two golden calves and they begin to worship him. And God gets really ticked. I mean, just read the chapter. He's so angry. He just wants to wipe them out and Moses intervenes. Well, Israel is involved in the same thing. They're worshiping these golden calves at Bethel and their shrines and totally distorted their religion so it becomes something that's very satisfying to them. I think that's why when we, we, we read Amos, we're not always sure what to do with it because it's such a big picture of the gospel. It makes us uncomfortable. He's talking about things that we don't usually talk about in evangelical circles. We're, we're used to dealing with the personal and the private and individual morality and character. We're not so used to dealing with social sins and social justice and what the common good is. I, I went through and listed just some of the sins that Amos mentions And it's a fascinating list. You'll see some things there uh, that are about uh, personal morality. But most of them have to do with the social structure in society. So violence and international violence and torture and nationalism and racism and imperialism and crimes against humanity and militarism and slavery. And that's just the first chapter, right? He's going after. How do I, what do I, what do I do with that? A lot if we begin thinking corporately and big picture. Then he goes on, idolatry and injustice and mistreating the poor, oppression, lack of compassion, political corruption, corruption of the courts, bribery, greed, fraud, lawlessness, complacency, misplaced trust, pride, usury, sexual immorality, persecution, materialism, and self-indulgence, hypocritical worship, cheating, dishonesty, price gouging, human trafficking, and righteousness. You know, we were talking about these things in my small group this last week. <laughs> and the light went on for some of the people in our group. They said, you know, when I step back and I look at what he's 
going after, if I'm honest, it, it feels like he's going after us because we're the haves. And Amos is really concerned about the haves mistreating the have-nots. And what he describes about their culture is true about our culture. And what they describe about them too often, unfortunately, is true about us. And it makes us uncomfortable. But it's supposed to. And it's been interesting to me. I was curious how we as a church would respond. And I realized that there is the potential to respond poorly to what Amos is saying. You see it in Amaziah. You remember who Amaziah is in back, back in chapter 7? He's the high priest. And he's really ticked at Amos because Amos is going after the status quo. And when you go after the status quo, it's threatening his position and his power and his influence. So what does he tell Amos? He tells Amos, get out of here. It's like, I don't want to even listen to this. He's threatened. And I was wondering how many of our people and how many of us will be threatened because it makes us just a little bit uncomfortable. See, Amos understands that the gospel has big implications, not simply individually, but for the society and the culture at large. I have to tell you a little personal story. I was listening, and this was a rebuke that came into my life a couple weeks ago. I was listening to Greg Thomas, who's a pastor at uh, Trinity Presbyterian Church in Virginia. I was at a conference where he was speaking, and he was talking about the comprehensive nature of the gospel, and identifying the fact that, you know, it's really easy to get frustrated with people who have this small view of the gospel, and I could relate, because I get frustrated with that at times, and he said this, he says, you know, if you hold these people in contempt, you are a fool, and my ears went up, because sometimes, unfortunately, that's my emotional reaction. And he says, you're a fool. He says, it's always foolish to hold something that people love in contempt. And he says, you've got to understand, they might not understand the whole implications of the gospel, but what they love is Jesus. And you never want to hold that into con- in contempt. And I felt really convicted. Because at times I do. And then he said this, and then he said, do you know why they hold that small view of the gospel? And I was all ears. He said, because that's what we've taught them. And I was convicted. Because sometimes we let the individualism of our culture and the consumerism of our culture and the desire to to make the message palatable to our culture because, you know, we want to be successful. We we give in to that. And so we give people a small view of the gospel because this is so attractive. This is very uncomfortable. But they believe what we taught them. You see, that's why Amos makes us so out of sorts because he's talking about this. Okay, second theological concept. 
we need to understand the nature of heaven and earth. And I was going to explain this to you, and I ran across a video that explains it uh, much better than I could, much quicker than I could, and in a more entertaining way than I could. So I decided I'm just going to show you a short video. So watch the screen. So in the Bible, the ideas of heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So I understand our space really well. We live here. There's trees, rivers, mountains. But my understanding of God's space gets a little fuzzy. And what we do get in the Bible are images trying to help us grasp God's space, which is basically inconceivable to us. So these are two very different types of spaces. Yes, they're, they're different in their nature, but here's what's really interesting is that in the Bible, these are not always separate spaces. So think of heaven and earth as like different dimensions that can overlap in the same exact space. So we talk a lot about going to heaven after we die, but this idea of heaven and earth overlapping, we don't talk a lot about that. Which is kind of crazy because the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about, how they were once fully united and then driven apart and about how God is bringing them back together once again. So let's go back to the beginning, where heaven and earth, they're completely overlapping. Yeah, this is what uh, the Bible's description of the Garden of Eden is all about. It's a place where God and humanity dwelt together, perfectly no separation, and, and humans then partner with God in building a flourishing, beautiful world, and so on. But as humans, we wanted to do things a different way. We wanted... God out, and we wanted to create a world apart from him. Yeah, so we have these two spaces now. And the Bible actually uses lots of different kinds of words and phrases to refer to these two spaces to make a, a clear distinction. So you've said that these spaces can overlap, though. So explain how that works. Yeah, this is where we have to start talking about temples. Because in the biblical world, you experience God's presence by going to a temple. That's where heaven and earth uh, overlap. Now, there are two types of temples described in the Bible. One is a tabernacle, basically a tent that was built by Moses. And the other was this massive building made by Solomon. And these temples were decorated with fruit trees and flowers and images of angels and all kinds of gold and jewels and so on. And these are designed to make you feel like you're going back to the garden. And at the center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, which was like the hot spot of God's presence. Now we can go and be with God again. But not so fast, because the temple also creates a problem. So God's space is full of his presence and goodness and justice and beauty. But human space is full of sin and injustice and the ugliness that results. So how do these spaces overlap if they're so different and they're in conflict with each other? This was resolved through animal sacrifice. Yeah, that's kind of weird. What do animal sacrifices have to do with this? Yeah, the, the idea is this. Animal sacrifices, somehow they absorb the sin when the animal dies in your place. And it creates a clean space, so to speak, where you are now free to enter into the temple and be in God's presence. Okay, so if I'm an Israelite and I live in Jerusalem, I might be able to be in God's presence. But you said the story of the Bible is all of heaven and earth reuniting. Right. So we have to keep going in the story where we come to Jesus in the New Testament. And in the Gospel of John, we hear this claim that God became human in Jesus and made his dwelling among us. Now, this word dwelling is really curious. It, literally, it means he set up a tabernacle 
among us. And so what John is claiming right here is that Jesus is a temple. He is now the place where heaven and earth overlap. What's interesting about Jesus is that he isn't staying in this safe, clean space. He's running around, hanging out with sinners. He's healing people of their sicknesses and forgiving people of their sins. He's basically creating little pockets of heaven where people can be in God's presence, but he's doing it out there in the middle of the world of sin and death. And he keeps telling everyone that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he even told his followers to pray regularly that God's kingdom come and that his will be done here on earth just as it is in heaven. But a lot of people are threatened by Jesus and they kill him, which seems to spoil this whole plan to reunite heaven and earth. But we, we have to go back to a scene earlier on in Jesus' story where John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus isn't just talked about as being a temple. He's also talked about as being the temple sacrifice. Yeah, so, so the cross is now the place where Jesus absorbs sin to create a clean space that is not limited like animal sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice has the power to keep spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more of heaven and earth. And this is all really great, but it leaves one big question in my mind, which is, what happens when I die? Don't I just fly over to God's space to be with Jesus. Yeah, so a few times in the New Testament, we learn that Christians will be with Jesus in heaven after they die, but that is not the focus of the Bible's story. The focus is on how heaven and earth are being reunited through Jesus and will be completely brought together one day when he returns. So in the book of Revelation, we get this beautiful image of the Garden of Eden, now in the form of a city, coming to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed creation. And God's space and human space completely overlap once again. So in Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 15, we're going to get a glimpse of that time when heaven and earth overlap. But Amos is just giving us a bare-bones understanding of that. We get it more developed as we go along in Scripture. But it's the beginning. It's the start. You'll see the renewal that he's talking about in this big picture of the gospel. So with those two theological concepts in mind, I'd like you to listen. I've asked Melissa to come and read for us Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. In that day... I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and will rebuild it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills, and I will bring my people Israel back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. Thanks, Melissa. 
as we look at the passage, what we're going to see is that Amos is describing the reestablishment of the kingdom or the kingdom coming in its fullness. And there's, there's three things that get reestablished. The, the first is God's rule. And you see that uh, the kingdom is coming in its full, fullness. You see that in verse 11. He says, in that day. Now, in that day is a reference to the day of the Lord. It, it is a day of judgment, and we've seen that as we work through Amos. In fact, if you go read the first part of Amos 9, it's this total destruction that's going to happen in that day. Uh, um, it, it prefigures the total destruction at the end of the world, the second coming of Christ as well. But in that day, this day of judgment, one side of it is judgment, but the other side of it is restoration. And he talks about there here, that here. He says, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and will rebuild it as it used to be. The, the word fallen shelter is really a stand-in for the notion of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was a metaphor for the authority or the reign or the rulership of David. And David was the, the regent of God. So in a sense, God is saying, I'm going to reestablish my, my th authority to rule. Uh, sometimes we do the same thing in our culture, use a, a, a word of a place to represent someone's authority. So if I talk about the White House, the White House says, or the White House does, well, actually the White House doesn't say or do anything. It's just a place. But when we say that, you know, we're talking about the authority of the administration or who's ever president. That's what they're saying. That's what they're doing. And that's, that's the idea here. God is reestablishing his rule on earth in, in his city of Jerusalem as the manifestation of the coming of his kingdom. So when the kingdom comes in its fullness, it begins with his rule. But it also involves uh, his people. And we see that in verse thir uh, 12 and 13. He says, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name so that they can be part of this kingdom. Now, the word Edom is really an interesting word in the Old Testament because Edom was a nation, but it's used figuratively to describe all the Gentiles, all those who are not part of the covenant with Israel, all the people who are not Jewish, the Gentiles. And what he's saying here is, look, now the kingdom's going to include not just the Jewish people, not just Israel, but all the nations, all the tribes, all the Gentiles, as well. You remember back in Genesis chapter 12, when, when God calls Abraham and makes a covenant with him, he tells Abraham, I'm going to use you to be a blessing to the world. And that's really the mission from the beginning, is to use Abraham and the Jewish people, not simply to be blessed by God, but to, to use them to bless the world, to, to reach all the nations, all the tribes, all the languages. And that's happening here. God's people are being restored. And then the last thing that happens is God's place. And this is an interesting description, 13 through 15. He says, the days are coming when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. What's he describing? Well, you, you uh, plowed the fields in October. You planted the seeds for the grapes, November, December. They would grow... You would harvest them in March, and then you would make your wine in June. And he's saying, look, the harvest has been so great. There's so many grapes that we're still in the process of harvesting them when it becomes time to plant again. 
It's just, it, it, the, the land has become incredibly fertile, more than you can even imagine. So much so that the, the grapes are even growing on the mountaintops, right? He says, new wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. And you didn't grow the grapes on the mountaintops because it was too cold and this ground wasn't fertile enough. But, but this, is, this is utopia. This is the remade world. Now everything's fertile. And it has huge implications. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They'll plant vineyards, drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. And, and when creation is remade, it's not just the physical creation that's re- remade, but the, the, the culture, the society, the whole creation stands for the whole, whole of society along with the natural world. It's remade. It's renewed. And everything's made right. So there's no more poverty because the harvest is too grand. There's no more oppression because you don't have to oppress somebody to make your way. There's no more capitalism, no more socialism, no more isms at all because now everything is made right according to what God wanted it to be. Utopia. So God's place. And that's what Amos is describing. And he's describing that to give hope to that remnant so that they know someday, someday, things will be made right. So what's that mean for us? Let me give you two applications. The first thing it means for us is that it helps us understand we are part of a greater story, part of a grand story. I was fascinated by an interview that was done with Tom Brady, the Super Bowl quarterback. Um, This was done back in 2005. He had won... I think two or three Super Bowls at that time. He was at the, at the top. You know, he, from our world's perspective, he's the guy who hasn't made. He's a beautiful wife, a great career, the best in the world, or considered the best. And it, they sat down and interviewed him for 60 minutes, Steve uh, Croft did. And he notes this, despite the fame and career accomplishments he had achieved already, Brady told Croft that he felt like something was still lacking in his life. Listen to him. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it's all about. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't. This this can't be. It's not all it's cracked up to be. And Croft pressed Brady as to what the right answer was. And Brady added, what's the answer? I wish I knew. I love playing football, and I love being quarterback for this team, but at the same time, I think there are a lot of other parts about me that I'm trying to find. You know what he's saying? From a world's perspective, I got it all made. But the reality is, I'm incredibly empty. This has no ultimate meaning. Winning a Super Bowl has no ultimate meaning because it's not tied to anything bigger. See, at some point, you have to decide what you believe about ultimate reality. When you die, do you just get buried into the ground and your body turned to dust? Does this world just keep spinning until it runs out of energy and then grows cold? Does the sun simply burn until it can burn no longer and is extinguished? Is that the end game? Nothing. Because if that's the end game, then there is no way to find meaning and significance and fullness in this life. Because it's headed nowhere. 
See, the only way you find significance is to attach yourself to something bigger than yourself, to become part of God's story, to become part of what he's doing. At Concordia College, they do a Christmas concert, a huge orchestra, huge choir. In 1927, they began to paint a backdrop uh, for the performance. And, and it's a huge backdrop. I mean, like 135 feet wide and 40 feet high. Just this awesome thing. And the way they would do it is they would rent a warehouse and they would lay this out and an artist would have conceptualized what it's supposed to be and then they would make it a paint by numbers. And then they'd get the community. There was about 600 people in the community. A, a junior high kids, high school kids, senior adults, everybody. They would come and they'd have certain numbers that they would have to paint. And everybody began working. This went on for six months. They'd paint by number. Everybody would do their little, their little piece of the painting. And then when it was all done, an artist would come in. And he'd check everybody's work, and he'd make it all right. And he'd make sure all the lines were straight, and everything was the right color, and filled in where it needed to be, and changed. He renewed it to become what it was meant to be. And then when Christmas came, you know, everybody in the community would go to the concert, and they were so proud you see that little green patch under that camel's foot? I painted that. Me. You see that ear on the donkey? That's my ear. You know, there, there's no significance in the little green patch unless it's part of a masterpiece. And then it becomes important. You see, we have this opportunity to become part of this grand masterpiece of what God is doing in the and when we do, all of life, when it's done for him and his kingdom, takes on meaning and significance. Second implication. That's a picture, by the way, of 2004's uh, backdrop. They would look like stained glass. It was really cool. Second, we can live with hope. We are hope-shaped creatures. What we believe about ultimate reality and what's going to happen to us and what's going to come impacts how we live now. Let me give you a silly illustration. Imagine that there are two men. They get hired by a company, and, and they, they are hired to sit at a desk and to put a widget on a widget and screw it down tight, whatever widget and widget is. And they just do this over and over and over and over again. How they're going to feel about that and how well they do that is going to be determined by what they believe is going to come at the end. If one of the men has said, hey, at the end of the year, you get $20,000 for all your work. You know, uh, a few months in, he's going to go, this, this is getting really to be a drag. I'm bored, tedious. I'm out of here. I don't want to do this anymore. If the other guy has said, hey, at the end of the year, you get $2 million, man, he's going to be whistling why it works. Two months down the line, when it's tedious in the morning, he's still going to be whistling why it works. Why? Because he knows, hey, I'm getting $2 million. I can do this a long time for $2 million. See, what you believe about the future, about what's going to come, dictates how you live. There's a poet who specialized in haiku who... Uh, lived in 19th century Japan. 
Issa was his name. He, he had a very hard life when he was very young. His mother died. Later on, he got married, and it was a struggle, and then one of his daughters died. And he was incredibly discouraged. He was a Buddhist, a, a Zen Buddhist. So he went to a Zen Buddhist master and told him about how difficult life was. And the monk, the master, told him, well, Issa, you know, life is an illusion. Life is like, the world is like dew. It's not real. And that was supposed to help him. So Issa went back and he wrote a poem. And this was the haiku he wrote. The world is dew. The world is dew. And yet, the depths of our heart. We know it has to be, and then yet, there's got to be something more. It just has to be. I want you to think for a moment about the hardest thing in your life that you struggle with, the place you're broken, the place you suffer. Now what Amos gives us here is really an answer to that. Because what Amos is saying is someday there's going to be an and yet. So you have this emptiness inside and nothing seems to fill it up. The day is going to come, the and yet, where it gets filled. And you have life to its fullness. Or maybe you wrestle with depression or a sadness or grief and it's just, just hangs over you all the time. This passage says, oh, the day is coming, the end yet, where it will be turned to joy. Maybe the brokenness for you is a sickness or a cancer or, or disability or the body is broken down and you just, it's a grind just to get up day after day. And Amos is saying, yeah, oh yeah, but, but hold on, someday, the end yet is coming, someday. Someday, the lame will walk and the blind will see. In fact, they won't just walk. They'll run and they'll fly. That day's coming. Some of you wrestle with mental illness and you just can't think straight all the time. The day is coming when you will have such clarity. Everything will make sense. Some of you wrestle with getting old and you're discouraged. Everything's not working like the way it should. But someday your body will be remade and renewed and resurrected. And some of you wrestle with death. Lost somebody you love and your life's consumed with grief. And you're scared. Let me tell you, someday the end yet is coming in, and the end yet is resurrected life. Resurrected life and hope. Let me leave you with one last thought. 
one of the things that's interesting about this passage is it does give us hope because someday there's going to be this ultimate reality. But the passage is written in such a way that it's really telling us, look, your ultimate hope is not in the ultimate reality. Your ultimate hope is in the one who brings about the ultimate reality. In the passage, it's interesting. If you have time this week, go through and, and just circle all the eyes because it's God speaking. And he says, I will restore. I will rebuild. I will plant. I will bring back. I will do it. So declares the Lord. In other words, God is saying, look, it's coming. This renewed heaven, this re- the end yet is coming. But what I want you to understand, I'm the one behind the end yet. It's becoming because of me. And this, this passage is really about my faithfulness and my love and my power to make things what they ought to be. If that is our God, then we can hold on to Him and trust Him in any circumstance in life. Because He is in charge of the end yet.